Section 2E, Gulf War, Military Operations 1991-2003 in Iraq and Afghanistan. Gulf War 1, 1990. Persian Gulf War and Subsequent Operations. The Gulf War was no surprise to anyone except perhaps Saddam Hussein. After prevailing in an eight-year war with Iran that was so costly this war nearly led to a military coup, Saddam Hussein invaded and attempted to annex the small, oil-rich nation of Kuwait on 2 August 1990. During his occupation of the country, he plundered it and brutalized the population. The invasion put Iraq, with the fourth-largest army in the world and an extensive program to develop nuclear weapons, on the doorstep of Saudi Arabia with vast petroleum reserves. If the Saudis also fell to Iraq, the dictator would control 50% of the world's oil. The United States sought and received a United Nations sanction to act against Iraq and joined 27 other nations to launch Operation Desert Shield, a massive military buildup in Saudi Arabia near the border of Iraq, aimed first at deterring Saddam Hussein from aggression against the Saudis and then to prepare the way for a counter-invasion if necessary. United States President George Bush demanded the immediate withdrawal of Iraqi forces from Kuwait. Saddam believed that, since Vietnam, the American public lacked the stomach for war. For more than six months, he alternated between defiance and vague promises of compliance. Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm Kuwait and Iraq, 1990-1991 By the time President Bush launched Operation Desert Shield, the United States Air Force and the sister services had moved a considerable distance toward a unified, conventional warfighting capability. The defensive deployment in itself was an impressive accomplishment. On 8 August 1990, 24 F-15Cs landed in Saudi Arabia after taking off 15 hours earlier from Langley Air Force Base, Virginia, some 8,000 miles away. Within five days, C-5 and C-141 airlifters had escorted in five fighter squadrons, an airborne warning and control system contingent, and an airborne brigade, 301 planes together. On 21 August, Secretary of Defense Richard Cheney announced that sufficient force was in place to defend Saudi Arabia. A month into the crisis, 1,220 Allied aircraft were in theater and combat ready. When Saddam Hussein missed the final deadline to withdraw his troops from Kuwait, Operation Desert Storm began 15 January 1991. Within the first 24 hours of Desert Storm, the air war was essentially won. The Iraqi Air Force hardly showed their face. Having established air dominance, coalition air forces turned their attention to entrenched ground forces, pounding them into a frightened mass ready to surrender to the first Allied troops they saw. In the final stages of the air war, the Air Force began tank plinking, or destroying Iraqi tanks on the ground one at a time. Figure 2.8 Maintenance was a key to the air campaign's success. Air Force historian Dr. Richard Hallion said, From the suppliers to the line crews sweating under the desert sun, the coalition's maintainers worked miracles, enabling ever higher sortie rates as the war progressed, essentially a constant surge. Not all enlisted airmen worked on maintenance crews. In addition to traditional enlisted functions, there were new duties, some of which were quite high-tech. Two less-known jobs were electronic emissions collection and analysis, undertaken with the electronic warfare officers and airborne intelligence technicians. 
Electronic intelligence was characterized by long hours of work on station and meticulous patient review of enemy transmissions, shot through with brief but urgently explosive moments when life-or-death information was quickly transmitted to the right people. On 28 February 1991, scarcely 48 hours after the air war ended and the land invasion took center stage, Iraq surrendered to the coalition. In the 43-day war, the Air Force was, for the first time in modern combat, the equal partner of land and sea power. The Air Force went into the Gulf, taking in Cold War terms about air superiority and sustainable casualties, and came out trumpeting air supremacy with minimum casualties. Within six months, 27 September 1991, strategic bomber crews were ordered to stand down from their decades-long, round-the-clock readiness for nuclear war. The Cold War was officially over, a new world had arrived, and the role of enlisted airmen changed. Operations Provide Comfort and Northern Watch, Iraq, 1991-2003 When the American-led International Coalition bombed Iraq and drove the forces of Iraq from Kuwait in 1991, Saddam Hussein's power was weakened. Rebellious Kurds in northern Iraq, whom Hussein brutally suppressed with chemical weapons three years earlier, launched an uprising in early March 1991. When Iraqi government troops defeated the rebellion a month later, threatening to repeat the massacres of the past, more than a million Kurds fled to Iran and Turkey. Hundreds of thousands more gathered on cold mountain slopes on the Iraqi-Turkish border. Lacking food, clean water, clothing, blankets, medical supplies, and shelter, the refugees suffered enormous mortality rates. On 3 April 1991, the United Nations Security Council authorized a humanitarian relief effort for the Iraqi Kurds. During the first week in April, the United States organized a combined task force for Operation Provide Comfort. About 600 pallets of relief supplies were delivered per day, but airdrops alone proved inadequate. Moreover, the operation failed to address the root of the problem. The refugees could not stay where they were, and Turkey, faced with a restless Kurdish population of their own, refused to admit them in large numbers. Operation Provide Comfort, therefore, evolved into a larger phase operation for American ground troops. After 1993, Saddam Hussein rarely challenged coalition aircraft patrolling the no-fly zones, but United States units remained wary. On 14 April 1994, two American F-15s patrolling the northern no-fly zone accidentally shot down two UH-60 Blackhawk helicopters, killing 26 people, including 15 Americans. Misidentifying the helicopters as hostile, the F-15 pilots failed to receive contrary information from either the helicopters or an orbiting E-3 aircraft. The friendly fire incident aroused negative public opinion and a demand for changes to prevent such accidents in the future. Phase 2 of Operation Provide Comfort ended in December 1996, thanks largely to infighting among Kurdish factions vying for power. When one Kurdish group accepted Iraqi backing to drive another from the northern Iraqi city of Erbil, United States transports participating in operations Quick Transit 1, 2, and 3 airlifted many displaced Kurds to safe areas in Turkey. During Operation Pacific Haven, 7,000 refugees proceeded to Guam for settlement in the United States. Operation Northern Watch, which began 1 January 1997 with an initial mandate of six months, succeeded Operation Provide Comfort. Operation Northern Watch officially ended 17 March 2003, two days before Operation Iraqi Freedom began.
Operation Southern Watch, Iraq, 1992-2003. On 26 August 1992, to discourage renewed Iraqi military activity near Kuwait, President George H.W. Bush announced a no-fly zone in southern Iraq in support of United Nations Security Council Resolution 688, Operation Southern Watch. The resolution protected Shiite Muslims under aerial attack from the Iraqi regime of Saddam Hussein in the aftermath of Operation Desert Storm and enforced other United Nations sanctions against Iraq. The Iraqi regime complied with the restrictions in the no-fly zone until 27 December 1992. F-16s shot down one Iraqi MiG-25 and chased a second aircraft back across the border. Less than a month later, Air Force aircraft attacked surface-to-air missile sites threatening coalition aircraft. In June, the United States launched cruise missile strikes against the Iraq Intelligence Service headquarters in Baghdad as retaliation for the planned assassination of former United States President George Bush during an April 1993 visit to Kuwait. In October 1994, Iraqi troops, including elite Republican Guard units, massed at the Kuwaiti border. The United States responded with Operation Vigilant Warrior, the introduction of thousands of additional United States Armed Forces personnel into the theater. Operation Southern Watch became the United States Air Force test for the Air and Space Expeditionary Force concept in October 1995 when a composite unit designed to replace temporarily a United States Navy carrier air wing leaving the Gulf area arrived to support flying operations. The Air and Space Expeditionary Force arrived fully armed and began flying within 12 hours of landing. The Air and Space Expeditionary Force concept proved sound. Additional Air and Space Expeditionary Forces have since deployed to support Operation Southern Watch. In 1997, in response to Iraqi aggression against Kurdish rebels in northern Iraq, President William Clinton expanded the Operation Southern Watch no-fly zone to the 33rd parallel just south of Baghdad. The expansion meant that most of Iraqi airspace fell into no-fly zones. One of the most important improvements in both flying operations and the quality of life for members resulted directly from the 1996 bombing at Kobar Towers Dharan Air Base. In the aftermath, the Air Force reviewed their entire security police, law enforcement, and force protection programs. In 1998, the Air Force reorganized existing security police units into new security forces groups and squadrons that trained and specialized in all aspects of force protection, including terrorist activity and deployed force security. Operation Southern Watch officially ended 26 August 2003. Operations Provide Relief Impressive Lift and Restore Hope, Somalia, 1992-1994. In 1992, America's armed forces took part in several major humanitarian operations across the globe. One of those places was Somalia. Refer to Chapter 1, Enlisted Heritage, Paragraph 1.17, for information on enlisted airmen's involvement with these operations. Operation Uphold Democracy, Haiti, 1994. The United States decided to intervene in Haiti on 8 September 1994. The United States Atlantic Command developed two different Operation Uphold Democracy plans, one for forcible entry and the other for passive entry. United States Air Force planners worked through evolving variations, not knowing which plan would be implemented. At nearly the last minute, a diplomatic proposal that former President James Jimmy E. Carter offered persuaded the military leader in Haiti to relinquish control. 
the unexpected decision caused a mission change from invasion to insertion of a multinational peacekeeping force. On 19 September 1994, the Joint Chief of Staff directed execution of the passive entry plan. For the Air Force, this meant activating an aerial force of more than 200 aircraft, transports, special operations, and surveillance planes. United States Air Force participation effectively ended 12 October 1994, when resupply of United States forces became routinely scheduled airlift missions and deployed aircraft and crews returned home. On 15 October 1994, the Haitian president returned to his country, the beneficiary of a strong United States response to an oppressive dictator. As in Panama, the Air Force brought to bear an overwhelming force of fighters, command and control aircraft, gunships and other special operations aircraft, reconnaissance airplanes, aerial refueling tankers, and thousands of troops aboard the airlift fleet of strategic and tactical aircraft. The successful adaptation to the last-minute change in mission from military invasion force to airlifting peacekeeping troops was a major indicator of the flexibility air power offers United States military and political leaders in fulfilling foreign policy objectives. Operation Provide Promise, Sarajevo and Bosnia-Herzegovina, 1992-1996 by 1991, the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, coupled with the disintegration of the Soviet Union itself, dissolved the political cement that bound ethically diverse Yugoslavia into a single nation. Freed from the threat of external domination, Roman Catholic Slovenia and Croatia declared their independence from the Yugoslav Federation dominated by Eastern Orthodox Serbia. In early 1992, Predominantly Muslim Bosnia-Herzegovina, Bosnia, also severed ties to the Federation. Fearing their minority status, armed Serbs within Bosnia began forming their ethnic state by seizing territory and, in the spring, besieging the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo. In April 1992, the United States recognized Bosnia's independence and began airlifting relief supplies to Sarajevo. On 3 July 1992, the United States designated operations in support of the United Nations Airlift Operation Provide Promise and the United States Air Forces in Europe C-130s began delivering food and medical supplies. Most United States Air Force missions flew out of Rhein-Main Air Force Base in Frankfurt, Germany. C-130s from the 435th and 317th Airlift Wings flew the initial operations provide promise missions, but over the course of the operation, Air Force Reserve, Air National Guard, and regular Air Force units rotated from the United States on three-week deployments. Although the United States was only one of at least 15 countries airlifting relief supplies to Sarajevo, by the end of 1992, United States airplanes had delivered more than 5,400 tons of food and medical supplies. Inaugurated during the Bush administration, Operation Provide Promise expanded significantly after President Clinton took office. He acted in response to continued attacks by Bosnian Serbs on Sarajevo and on the relief aircraft themselves. A secondary mission, Operation Provide Santa, took place in December 1993 when C-130s dropped 50 tons of toys and children's clothes and shoes over Sarajevo. A month later, an Operation Provide Promise C-130 was the first United States Air Force aircraft to suffer damage from the operation when struck by an artillery shell at the Sarajevo airport. Despite the fact there were no injuries and the damage was minor, the United Nations suspended flights for a week. 
On 14 December 1995, warring factions signed peace accords at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. The last humanitarian airland delivery into Sarajevo took place on 4 January 1996. During the three-and-a-half-year operation, aircraft supporting the United Nations relief operation withstood 279 incidents of ground fire. Operation Deny Flight, Bosnia, 1993-1995 North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, Operation Deny Flight, was an effort to limit the war in Bosnia through imposition of a no-fly zone over the country. There was only one non-American in the NATO Operation Deny Flight command chain, although many other nations participated, including the United Kingdom, France, the Netherlands, Spain, Germany, and Turkey. Over the first 18 months of Operation Deny Flight, the operation's mission expanded and aircraft engaged United Nations resolution violators. On 28 February 1994, NATO aircraft scored the first aerial combat victories in their 45-year history. Two United States Air Force F-16s from the 526th Fighter Squadron intercepted six Bosnian Serb jets and shot down four. Despite NATO actions, Operation Deny Flight did not stop the Bosnian Serb attacks or effectively limit the war. Bosnian Serbs often took members of lightly armed United Nations forces hostage to compel NATO to discontinue airstrikes. In May 1995, Operation Deny Flight aircraft struck a munitions depot, after which Bosnian Serbs took 370 United Nations soldiers hostage. The United Nations vetoed further strikes. In June, Bosnian Serbs shot down a United States Air Force F-16 patrolling over Bosnia. Operation Deliberate Force served notice to Bosnian Serb forces that they would be held accountable for their actions. Airstrikes came not only against targets around Sarajevo, but also against Bosnian Serb targets throughout the country. The results were dramatic. Operation Deliberate Force marked the first campaign in aerial warfare where precision munitions outweighed conventional bombs. The incessant air campaign, with only a few days' respite in early September, as well as ground advances by Croatian and other forces against the Serbs, garnered the desired results. On 14 September, the Serbs agreed to NATO terms and the bombing stopped. Operation Deliberate Force officially ended 21 September 1995, with the December signing in Paris of peace accords among the warring parties. Operation Joint Endeavor, whose mission was to implement the agreements, was replaced in 1996. Operation Allied Force, Kosovo, 1999 The conclusion of Operations Deliberate Force and Deny Flight did not mean the end to strife in the region. After revoking the province of Kosovo's autonomy in 1989, the Serbian government slowly began to oppress the ethnic Albanian population. That oppression eventually turned to violence and mass killings, and the international community began to negotiate with Serbian leaders in the spring of 1998 for a solution acceptable to all parties. The Serbs, led by President Slobodan Milosevic, considered the matter an internal one. A final effort to negotiate a settlement began in January 1999 at Rambouet, France, but talks broke down following a large offensive against Albanian civilians in March. To prevent a repeat of the ethnic cleansing that took place in Bosnia, on 24 March 1999, NATO forces began flying operations to force Serbia to accept NATO terms to end the conflict in Kosovo. Named Operation Allied Force, NATO leaders hoped a few days of airstrikes to demonstrate NATO's resolve would force Milosevic to capitulate. 
That was not the case and took 78 days with more than 38,000 sorties for NATO to secure their objective. The primary factor in the conclusion of Operation Allied Force was NATO's unity and resolve. NATO was tough and became progressively tougher throughout the campaign. This lesson was clear to Milosevic, who had hoped he could outweigh NATO. In addition, the precision and the persistence of the air campaign were fundamental factors in convincing Milosevic to end the fight. The air campaign started slowly, but gathered momentum as the air campaign went on and became increasingly damaging to Milosevic's entire military infrastructure, not just the forces in the field in Kosovo, but throughout the entire country. Operations Noble Eagle and Enduring Freedom Four unprecedented acts of violence in three locations spreading from New York City to western Pennsylvania to Washington, District of Columbia, on 11 September 2001, left thousands dead, thousands more grieving, and a nation wondering what would happen next. This fanatical hatred, carried out by a hidden handful, manifested and exploded, causing two of the world's tallest buildings to crumble, scarring the nation's military nerve center, and forcing the President of the United States aboard Air Force One to seek safe haven. Following the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Air Force community realized the depth and scope of the hatred. In the days that followed, stories circulated of service members and civilians pulling comrades from burning buildings, fighting fires, providing medical attention, and volunteering to do whatever they could. The Air Force responded quickly to the attack. The day of the attack, American fighter aircraft began combat air patrols in the skies of America in support of Operation Noble Eagle. Six months later, North American Aerospace Defense Command, with more than 100 Air National Guard, Air Force Reserve, and regular Air Force fighters from 26 locations, continued to monitor American airspace. More than 80% of the pilots flying Operation Noble Eagle missions belong to the Air National Guard. Nearly as many Air Force Reserve, Air National Guard, and active duty members, more than 11,000, deployed to support Operation Noble Eagle, figure 2.9. As for the other thrust of the United States' response to the attack, Operation Enduring Freedom. Operation Enduring Freedom would take the fight to the nation's enemies overseas, most notably Afghanistan, an impoverished country where the United States' focus was twofold. Provide humanitarian airlift to the oppressed people of Afghanistan and conduct military action to root out terrorists and their supporters. When the Taliban, Afghanistan's ruling government, refused President George W. Bush's demand that the suspected terrorists be turned over and all terrorist training camps closed, the president ordered United States forces to the region. Approximately 350 United States aircraft, including B-1 and B-52 bombers, F-15 and F-16 fighters, special operations aircraft, RQ-1B and RQ-4A unmanned aerial vehicles, and Navy fighters, deployed to bases near Afghanistan, including some in the former Soviet Union. On 7 October 2001, following continued Taliban refusal to hand over suspected terrorists, United States, British, and French aircraft began a sustained campaign against terrorist targets in Afghanistan. Working closely with United States Special Operations Troops and Afghan opposition forces, air power employed precision weapons to break the Taliban's will and capacity to resist. Organized resistance began to collapse in mid-November, and the Taliban abandoned the last major town under the control, Kandahar, in December 2001. In addition to strike operations, the Air Force flew humanitarian relief, 
dropping nearly 2.5 million humanitarian rations. Operation Anaconda One of the most crucial joint combat operations in Afghanistan was Operation Anaconda, designed and executed to remove the last remaining organized Taliban resistance. Operation Anaconda, conducted in the Shihakat Valley of Afghanistan during early March 2002, was a complex battle fought in rugged mountainous terrain under difficult conditions. The battle ended as an American victory at the cost of eight United States military personnel killed and more than 50 wounded. But the difficult early stages of the battle provide insights for thinking about how to organize, train, and equip United States forces for future joint expeditionary operations and how to pursue transformation. Refer back to Chapter 1, Air Force Heritage, paragraphs 1.19.4 to 1.19.6 for the enlisted perspective for this operation. Operation Iraqi Freedom The primary political goal of Operation Iraqi Freedom was to create a stable Iraq with their territorial integrity intact and a broad-based government that renounces weapons of mass destruction development and use and no longer supports terrorism or threaten their neighbors. Based on that primary objective, the Combined Force Commander's top three objectives were to defeat or compel capitulation of Iraqi forces, neutralize regime leadership, and neutralize Iraqi theater ballistic missile weapons of mass destruction delivery systems. For some additional information on the enlisted perspective for this operation, refer back to Chapter 1, Air Force Heritage, paragraphs 1.19.7 to 1.19.9. Meanwhile, British forces took Basra, control of which was essential to delivering humanitarian aid. American commanders declared Saddam's regime was no longer in control of Baghdad on 9 April. Before the city fell, jubilant crowds toppled a 40-foot statue of Saddam. Iraq's science advisors surrendered to United States forces, the first on the 55 most wanted leaders list issued by the coalition. In a speech delivered on 2 May 2003 aboard the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, President Bush announced victory in Iraq. The president's announcement was based on an assessment given to him three days earlier by General Tommy Franks, the top United States military commander in the Gulf. Meanwhile, in a speech delivered by Secretary of the Air Force James G. Roche on 25 April 2003 to attendees of the Command Chief Master Sergeant Conference in Gunter Annex, Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama, Secretary Roche assessed how United States combat air forces performed during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Secretary Roche mentioned that in the past month in Iraq, coalition forces liberated an oppressed people and began the process of rebuilding a very different tribal and political climate. Iraq and Afghanistan Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan began after the attacks of September 11, 2001. Small, highly mobile Army, Navy, and United States Air Force Special Operation Forces were inserted deep into the hostile mountains of Afghanistan to find, capture, and destroy elusive Taliban and Al-Qaeda forces. United States Air Force enlisted personnel played key roles in the attempt to drive the Taliban out, and they were quickly removed from power. But that wasn't the end of the conflict. Air Force airmen continued searching for terrorists hiding in the mountains. United States Air Force airmen remained an essential part of United States military operations worldwide as Operation Enduring Freedom continued. They established forward assault landing strips, directed close air support strikes, and recovered downed and wounded personnel. In Iraq, 
United States Air Force airmen, in joint operations with other United States unconventional forces, and conducted missions that paralyzed 11 Iraqi divisions, making the land drive to Baghdad less difficult. On July 19, 2003, Technical Sergeant Kevin Whalen, a Tactical Air Control Party Terminal Attack Controller, Figure 2.10, was supporting an Afghan military forces and United States Special Forces Combat Patrol in the Guyan Valley, Afghanistan. The patrol was hit in a well-coordinated ambush by a numerically superior enemy force. Whalen returned effective fire with an automatic grenade launcher and remained exposed to enemy fire from three directions while the rest of the team took cover. The grenade launcher was hit six times, but Whalen remained at his post. While he was trying to fix the launcher, Whalen was hit three times. One bullet hit his body armor, another his Gerber tool, and the third struck him in the left arm. Whalen dropped out of the turret and began first aid to stop the bleeding. At the same time, he recovered his radio and calmly called in close air support. When the engagement was over, Whalen insisted that all other wounded be evacuated first so he could keep control of the close air support. After two days in the hospital, he refused to stay and went back to the team to continue combat missions. For his actions, Technical Sergeant Whalen was awarded the Silver Star. The bombing of the Kobar Towers on 25 June 1996 drove major changes in how we conduct basic military training. Since that time, the United States Air Force has placed a strong emphasis on the preparation of our young airmen for combat. While the intense training has become longer, it has also shifted to include a deployment phase. In 2005, this deployment phase was called the Beast and places the trainees in an environment similar to those they may experience once they deploy. In addition to tackling the beast and the massive obstacle courses, other training includes defending and protecting their base of operations, directing search and recovery, basic self-aid and buddy care, and they begin leadership training. As deployments continue, our airmen are much more prepared in 2012 as a result of lessons learned at Cobar Towers. Senior Master Sergeant Ramon Colon Lopez, a pararescue man deployed to Afghanistan March 11, 2004. Figure 2.11. He was part of an advanced force operations team and along with elements of the Afghan National Strike Unit to capture a high-value target, a drug kingpin who was funding terrorism, and to prevent the proliferation of chemical weapons. Colon Lopez was on an operation in Afghanistan. Colon Lopez was on the first of four helicopters, which took sustained small arms fire and was seriously damaged as they landed. With rounds impacting all around him and unsure of the size of the enemy force, he pressed forward, overrunning enemy positions. His actions suppressed enemy fire against the other three helicopters. Colin Lopez and the team drove the enemy away. The raid resulted in two enemy kills, ten enemy apprehensions, and the destruction of rocket-propelled grenades and small-caliber weapons. As a result of this action, he became one of the first six recipients of the Combat Action Medal. Additionally, he received the Bronze Star with Valor for his actions during the engagement. Because of budget constraints, the United States Air Force reduced the size of the active duty force in 2007 to roughly 64% of that of the United States Air Force at the end of the Gulf War in 1991. In 2008, the United States Air Force went from 360,000 active duty personnel to 330,000 personnel. Consequently, crews flying training hours were also reduced. In late January 2007, 
Two United States Army Special Forces teams that included United States Air Force Combat Controller's Technical Sergeant Brian Patton and Staff Sergeant David Orvash responded to help Iraqi police in Najaf, who tried to arrest what they thought were only 30 members of the fanatical Soldiers of Heaven sect. Instead, they were ambushed by about 800 heavily entrenched insurgents. A large battle ensued, and Patton and Orvash successfully brought in close air support that strafed and bombed the enemy. More help arrived and was quickly pinned down, which included Combat Controller Staff Sergeant Ryan Wallace. Figure 2.12 Thanks to Wallace and several others, their actions would turn the tide of the battle. At a key time in the battle, Wallace called in a 500-pound laser-guided bomb against the enemy position 100 meters away, danger close, and killed or stunned the 40 insurgents in the position. Then, at great risk to their lives, Wallace and two others charged the position and killed the remaining enemy. About 370 insurgents were killed, mostly by air attack, and more than 400 were captured, including 14 high-value targets. The destruction of this strong point proved to be the turning point in the battle. The three combat controllers' actions were essential to victory in this battle. The withdrawal of American military forces from Iraq has been a contentious issue within the United States since the beginning of the Iraq War. As the war has progressed from the initial 2003 invasion phase to a multi-year occupation, United States public opinion has turned in favor of troop withdrawal. In late April 2007, the United States Congress passed a supplementary spending bill for Iraq that set a deadline for troop withdrawal, but President Bush vetoed this bill soon afterwards. All United States forces were mandated to withdraw from Iraqi territory by 31 December 2011 under the terms of a bilateral agreement signed in 2008 by President Bush. The United States troop withdrawal from Iraq was completed on 18 December 2011, early Sunday morning. In March 2013, Technical Sergeant DeLorean Sheridan, figure 2.13, was completing a routine pre-brief for a combat control mission at his deployed location in Wardok Province, Afghanistan. While his team loaded gear into their vehicles, an Afghan national police officer suddenly turned and opened fire with a truck-mounted machine gun 25 feet away. Simultaneously, 15 to 20 insurgents just outside the village engaged the base with heavy machine gun fire. With rounds striking and killing his teammates surrounding him, Technical Sergeant Sheridan closed in on the gunman with a pistol and M4 rifle, neutralizing the immediate threat with deadly accuracy. Still under heavy attack from outside insurgents, Technical Sergeant Sheridan exposed himself to heavy machine gun fire three more times to drag his wounded teammates out of the line of fire to a protected casualty collection point. Once his wounded teammates were pulled to safety, Technical Sergeant Sheridan directed close air support and surveillance aircraft to pinpoint, engage, and eliminate the additional insurgents. During these efforts, Technical Sergeant Sheridan also aided in assessing and moving his wounded teammates while directing the entrance and exit of six medical evacuation helicopters. Sergeant Sheridan's calmness and leadership in the face of danger helped save 23 lives and allowed for the evacuation of his critically wounded teammates. For these actions, Technical Sergeant Sheridan was awarded the Silver Star. He also received one of the Air Force's most prestigious awards, the 2013 Lance P. Saijan United States Air Force Leadership Award. Lastly, he was selected as one of the 12 Outstanding Airmen of the Year for 2014. 
For most United States and NATO forces, the war in Afghanistan will be over by the end of 2014. The mission of roughly 300 American airmen could continue for years after the 12-year-old war is technically over. Those airmen are helping stand up the Afghan Air Force, and their mission is expected to continue until the Afghan Air Force becomes fully independent in 2017. President Obama announced on 19 August 2014 that he planned to withdraw the last American troops from Afghanistan by the end of 2016. Under a new timetable, the 32,000 American troops now in Afghanistan would be reduced to 9,800 after this year, 2014. That number would be cut in half by the end of 2015, and by the end of 2016, there would only be a vestigial force to protect the embassy in Kabul and to help the Afghans with military purchases and other security matters. At the height of American involvement in 2011, the United States had 101,000 troops in the country. Besides carrying out operations against the remnants of al-Qaeda, the troops that stay behind will train Afghan security forces. But, from 2015 onward, they'll be quartered at Bagram Airfield and in Kabul, the capital. While they'll be supplemented by NATO troops, Alliance members should follow America's lead in pulling out by the end of 2016. The shift in focus is from al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan to al-Qaeda threats that have sprung up from Syria to Nigeria. We will go from the United States-led Operation Enduring Freedom to NATO's Operation Resolute Support. The Air Force Cross is awarded to United States and foreign military personnel and civilians who have displayed extraordinary heroism in one of the following situations. While engaged in action against a U.S. enemy, while engaged in military operations involving conflict with a foreign force, or while serving with a friendly nation engaged in armed conflict against a force in which the United States is not a belligerent party. The Air Force Cross is awarded when the heroic actions fall just short of warranting the Congressional Medal of Honor. A complete listing of recipients, with a brief chronological account of their heroic events leading to their decoration, is located at http colon forward slash forward slash A-F-E-H-R-I dot Maxwell dot A-F dot M-I-L slash pages slash A-F cross slash A-F cross dot H-T-M. Conclusion. From the skies over the Rio Grande to those over Iraq and Afghanistan nearly 100 years later, air power has evolved from an ineffective oddity to the dominant form of military might in the world. The applications and effectiveness have increased with each succeeding conflict. In World War I, air power played a minor role, and in Kosovo, the only role. This chapter looked at the development of air power through the nation's many conflicts and just a few of the many contributions of enlisted personnel.